0: You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org.
1: Welcome to season three of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. We thought we would do something a little bit different for this season. Instead of kicking off with our usual hilarious introduction, we're actually just going to have a brief conversation about our process as we prepped for each of these episodes. Paul and I both found ourselves wanting to make the universal Christ more practical and more relatable. And as we considered what would help us in that process, how can we hone in on the and between action and contemplation, we realized we wanted to have a conversation about values.
2: Yeah,
3: and one thing that we thought would be helpful for all of you is coming into our process a little bit, because this is very personal for us, as we know that personal gateway often connects at the most universal level. And so in our preparation for these conversations with Richard, they are so delightful, sometimes soulful, sometimes there's tears, usually a ton of laughter,
1: mm-hmm.
3: um, because we're we're talking about things that matter most to us.
1: Right, as we were preparing for this conversation on values, we realized that both of us, without even knowing it, were kind of going through a journey this summer of taking stock of where we were at in our lives, and wanting to really concretely land on what are three principles or four principles or vows or values that I can really orient toward um, to make this more concrete in my life. And I'm talking about something that would be so concrete that it can inform how I make my choices as a mom, but how I make my choices even in work, in mm-hmm. life, how I spend my time. And It was amazing to me, Paul, because... We didn't even talk about this. We were both kind of going through this this summer. And when we sat down to get ready for this season, we realized both of us had been trying to articulate, okay, what are the principles I want to live by?
3: Yeah. And I think I was sharing with you a practice that uh, my wife, Laura, and I did before we were married, where we were kind of naming, we each kind of took a separate piece of paper and I named like, what do I want to see in... uh, Every day of my life, every week of my life, every month, every season, every quarter, every year, as a way to kind of see what how am I attuning myself, then asking her to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And then we would see where it overlapped and we would try to pull our values from that as a sense of where do we where are we finding life in the day-to-day and the and the the seasons of of our life together? And for you, it looks a little bit different because you were, well, I'll let you talk. What am I doing?
1: Yeah, <laughs> thanks, Paul. Hey, why don't you <laughs> mansplain it for me, though? <laughs> like, I didn't explain. <laughs> but like, no, seriously, I was I was out on vacation with my kids, um, slowing down in nature. And you'll hear me talk about this on this episode, but I had one of those experiences where I realized that to live from this spiritual frequency, to live from this place that can actually recognize the universal Christ in all things, it takes a certain level of intentionality and being intentional means we have to stop, ask ourselves these questions, focus in on the, the small choices, um, incremental ways that we can live into this further. And I think that's what you're going to hear in this episode is, um, us having a conversation with Richard about what, if any, like how, how he would describe the core values of the universal Christ and then, how we can together as a community seek to live into that more.
3: Yeah. And Richard make, makes connections with values that we didn't necessarily think of going into it. Right. And the way that he was able to, to connect that to the, the greater tradition, the greater perennial tradition in our own Christian lineage was pretty enlightening for us as we kind of orientated ourselves around values as vows. Yeah. Ultimately.
1: Yeah. Spoiler alert. I think we started in order during this episode. I think that happened.
2: we <laughs> are <I'm> so confused.
3: <laughs> and with that, here's our conversation with Richard on values.
1: Richard, I recently went through a bit of a reset. I was out with my kids on a farm that we like to vacation at, and I was in nature. And as so often happens in nature, there was this slowing down to another frequency. yes. So much more than just being on vacation. It felt like there was a slowness and silence and rhythm that allowed me to touch on a spiritual frequency. And so when I came back from that time, I realized I need to live my life from that frequency more yes. and Good. that I, I need to take steps to do that. And so I, I started working on creating some values, some three simple values that I could live from to help me make choices and decisions and guide me as a parent, um, but also in my my work-life rhythm to live from that place more. And so the first question that I kind of feel as we as we're talking about values in this episode is, as we've journeyed through the themes of the universal Christ, I wonder if you could share with us what you think three or more, any values that might be based on these teachings of the universal Christ that can help us actually embody it, um, to learn how to recognize Christ in all things in our everyday, ordinary lives.
4: Well, it's funny you'd come up with three, because it just so happens (laughs) a few weeks ago I uh, came up with three, too. I mean it. This was not set up, as (laughs) you know. Uh, And I don't know that they'll perdure, but um, I I think it's almost so simple it's hard to teach. They're not highfalutin, heroic values. Uh, And the first one is that we have to somehow live a life that's connected to the heart. Mm. We get into head, ideology, righteousness, opinionatedness and my word for that is devotion hmm. and I have to say I've learned that from old-time Catholics and old-time evangelicals they're the healthy ones <laughs> uh, they're invariably heart-based people who um, who look out at reality with soft eyes you, you can almost see it in their eyes before they start talking are the a natural smile on their lips. Uh, so I'm going to encourage the um, the uncovering of what we mean by the word devotion. Because I don't want our teaching uh, on the universal Christ or the CAC in general to be another heady uh, righteousness, a heady explanation. The second... Uh, I come up with is, is simplicity. Now this is a very Franciscan uh, value, and it overlaps with humility. It overlaps with simple living, that if there isn't some movement toward downward mobility, now there's many less levels on which to understand that. But if your spirituality is in any sense making you climb achieve prove perform um i think you have good reason to mistrust it because that's the way your ego is operating and you're going to use even the sermon on the mount even the eight beatitudes even even non-dual thinking and our contemplative thinking as a way to be superior as a way to be uh better um so some form of radical simplicity, it, it should get simpler and simpler. The third one, I haven't found the right word for yet, so I'm going to give you the word I have as of now. I'm calling it a sense of public virtue, and let me explain. Please, if anybody hears this and can come up with the right word, send it in. Um, I think the virtue I was trained in, I'm sorry to say, in the seminary and even novitiate, was private virtue. How could I interiorly be virtuous? So I, Richard, was good. So I, Richard, was worthy of God and in those days could go to heaven. I don't think that comes close to the mystery of the body of Christ. The mystery of the body of Christ has the face turned outward. How can I be good for the sake of my neighborhood? How can I be good for the sake of of my city, my church, my community? Uh, How does my goodness affect goodness in my children? It really is a different starting point. It's not seeking your own ego enhancement, but uh, the, uh, the spiritual growth of others. Wasn't it Scott Peck, I think, who had that as his definition of love? To really seek the spiritual good of others. I see that, frankly, in both of you as parents. And I see that in any good parent. I bet it's hard not to lose as the kids get a little older and a little more troublesome. But uh, at least when they're little and innocent and cute, you just want them to, to spiritually understand and to spiritually grow. So don't lose that. Mm. It's, it's a face outward. You're not trying to be privately perfect. I want to be good for the sake of Billy and Ebba mm-hmm. <laughs> or whoever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very real in young parents it's unfortunately often lost as the kids get older. I don't know why. Hmm.
1: Maybe because our our identities start to get wrapped up. Like we lose, I, I can see this in a lot of parenting, right? But the ways in which our identity becomes attached to, you know how children are performing, performing, which yeah. then becomes another form of that another, private yeah. virtue that you're talking about. Yes, yeah. Yes,
4: yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Very good.
3: Uh, that's why I really like bringing my kids with me wherever I go because of that reason. So they can kind of see that
4: how you interact.
3: Am I the same person at home as I am in public? Oh. And then mm-hmm. when they call me out, I mean, not in, they're in a kid kind of way where they ask a question like, why did you do that? Or isn't, you're funny that they, You sound different when you talk to that person.
4: Isn't that interesting how they're watching you? Yeah. We used to attack, I'm sorry to say, our eight mother (laughs) for that very thing. Uh Yeah, you're terrible with us, but as soon as the relatives come, you're all polite. (laughs) An angel. Uh
1: Uh, Well, Richard, um, if it's okay— today's
4: her birthday. Oh, great. Forgive me,
2: Mother. (laughs) (laughs) It is.
1: <laughs> She's haunting you now. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's all right with you, I'd, I'd love to spend a little time with each of those values that oh. you described. Oh, okay. um, and starting with devotion, you know, as, as a good, you know, child, uh, Baptist, growing up as a Baptist and as a good evangelical, I really appreciate that you're making a distinction um, about the ways in which, you know, uh, the devotion moves into something bigger. Right? It's not just devotion to my personal view of things. It's not my devotion to um, our particular tribe's camp um, view of God or reality. So we're not saying we have devotion to the contemplative view of reality, right? What you're describing sounds like a posture of the heart. Like you said, soft eyes. Could you describe this more? It's not, so it's almost like, not devotion to a specific point, but almost to the all. Can you help us understand that?
4: I wonder, as you say that, if I'm not talking about maybe what Jesus was talking about when he talked about blessed are the pure of heart. Mm-hmm. It's a um, it's having achieved a purity of intention and desire, and motivation that isn't about me, how I look, mm-hmm. and whether people are going to like me or pay me. or. Um, and I think we have to purify our intention several times a day, really. Why am I doing what I'm doing? And if you don't localize that in the compassionate space that we call the heart, it all becomes um, what? It all becomes, give me a word uh, making an impression Mm. uh, that will ultimately benefit me Mm. Um, whereas a heart-centered person really isn't first of all, I'm not saying it's wrong first of all concerned about how will this benefit me You've all met it in loving people who seem to really care about, is this helpful, Richard, or is this going to make any difference? They really appear to be concerned about you. Mm -hmm. It's quite beautiful. You feel softened. You feel held. You feel tenderized Mm -hmm. (laughs) around people like that. And, you know, on the public level, whatever the CAC has been communicating and today seems to be receiving such a broad response. If it's not heartfelt and creating heartfelt people, I predict it will not last Mm -hmm. and it doesn't deserve to last. Mm -hmm. It'll be another head trip Mm -hmm. uh, that we can argue about. But heartfelt people, you can't dismiss them. I think it was the image of the early Quakers. Uh, still today, the Amish, the early Franciscans. I don't know that we kept it. Mm-hmm. It was a heartfeltness uh, that, that made them dear to people, even if they didn't agree with them on other points, like not going to war. Mm-hmm. Or they still couldn't dismiss them. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. I'm thinking, Richard, of someone who could be hearing you talk about devotion and saying, well, I, I feel cold in my relationship to mm. God, or to Jesus. How, what would you say to that person as a way to help cultivate that? How do you help them see that this is something that is not uh, an innate gift, but something that someone can also grow into and mm. fan that small little spark so it can grow into a
4: flame? Well, we, we all know you can't fake it. Yeah, it won't, it won't be an outflowing energy. But sometimes you do have to fake it till you make it, as they
2: say. <laughs>
4: uh, you have to practice compassion or practice being kind. Um, but your heart, as Wesley said, has to have been strangely warmed. Beautiful phrase. Um, this is one of the hardest things in the teaching of spirituality because you cannot manufacture the warming of the heart you can't say you should have a warm heart (laughs) Uh, it is the work of grace so I know that's a non answer but it really is an answer Mm -hmm. and if it Helps you to be less willful, less pushy, less judgmental toward yourself. The face you turn toward yourself is the face you will turn toward the world. Mm -hmm. And I deeply believe that. Once you learn to stop hacking away at your own um, mistakes, you'll stop hacking away at everybody else's. Mm
1: -hmm. I wonder... Just that phrase you used of uh, this the the warm the where where does your heart warm or what warms your heart? I wonder if that could be a practice of devotion of cultivating devotion to inwardly pay attention to what is warming your heart. Ooh. Like what is it that actively
4: yes, in
1: it. your life warms your heart? To turn toward those places because that seems to be the work of Christ or the spirit moving mm. in your life, right? So that, you know, I mean, I remember there were there were periods of my life where I felt really conflicted about the idea of praying to Jesus. Or, you know, yes. so if I was listening to this now, the idea of having devotion to Jesus or God would have been really hard because I was still working through unlearning some of the unhelpful things I had learned. But during those times, you know, nature became this portal (laughs) for me for that soft warming, Mm. that soft, the heart softening. And something deeper being um, the embers of faith were still very much alive. Mm.
4: You know, as a Catholic, I can't help but wonder or ask, why did these often saccharine images of the sacred heart of Jesus the Holy Heart of Mary. <laughs> if you've been to a, a Catholic country, they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. And they're holding their heart out in front of their body. No image emerges that broadly unless it's doing its work. Mm-hmm. And I see the, the sweet people in front of them. Um, and it's we heady people who refuse to kneel there or weep there or mm-hmm pray there because we don't understand the changing of the heart uh, the uh we want to figure it out all up here
1: it's bodily like it sounds so bodily to to put your to put Uh your heart it's um it also makes me think of a certain stance of radical vulnerability
4: Mm, of course it is because the heart is always naked, even with the crown of thorns around it. Mm-hmm. I know it's terrible art. Uh, but as you know, Teilhard even made a great deal of this. Yeah. This sophisticated theologian has profound commentaries on the sacred heart of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? So, yeah, we do well. And and you did it with your Sunday school images of Jesus. Right. Mm-hmm. Blue eyes and
2: <laughs> <laughs>
4: blowing like hair in the wind. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's not like a picture of Paul in his
1: youth. <laughs>
2: uh, you
1: know what, though? I love the Sacred Heart image. And I, I wonder, you know, just as we're talking about devotion as a value um, with this framework of the universal Christ, is it not, is that value not devotion to the Sacred Heart in all things? Yeah, of course. A turning Which toward is the that.
4: Compassionate soul at the heart of everything.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So whatever your and, entry point to that connection, yes. that's it.
4: Mm-hmm. If we really had the faith to believe this is the nature of God, can you imagine how much healing would take place? <sighs> this is the nature of God. Not the judgmental um, lightning bolt. Throwing God that most of us de facto live with.
2: Mm.
4: Yeah. Oh. yeah, I resonate so much with
3: what you were saying about nature being kind of something that can hold you uh, and guide you in that state of devotion. And I think also think too of folks who are devotional themselves, who have that mm. that devotional heart. Where like mm-hmm. being around them, I think. It, oh, yeah. it does shape your own journey in known and unknown ways. And there's something about community, a community devotion that also helps springboard you, uh, I think, on a path where it it lessens if it's just an individual individualistic yeah. route. And this is why I think evangelicals have done it so well, speaking from my own heritage. Oh, yes. That community mm-hmm. was so heart-centered that I was able to grow into that and not get lost uh, in just... Why well, disagree with this, or get in a head trap. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Like it, it allowed us, at an experiential level, to trust our heart. Mm-hmm. And that seems to I'm so be... so glad
4: you can say that. ...at the gift of yeah. it. I yeah. think it's know? true. I say it in these groups of ministers who often come here. There is a heartfelt love of Jesus in many Protestants that we Catholics had before Vatican II. And after we became correct, <laughs> mm-hmm. liturgically correct, scripturally correct, uh, and less heartfelt, you know.
3: So we've walked around devotion. I'm curious uh, with simplicity. Rich, can you further unpack? Like, you know, you were formed in a community that really valued simplicity. Yeah, we did, interiorly and exteriorly. How? You know, when you look at those of us who are living outside of that kind of intentional community, religious community, where do do you see uh, simplicity alive and well in the world that you can point to and and people can begin to have models of how they could Mm -hmm. follow in this lifestyle of simplicity that, you know, Jesus emulated, Francis emulated, Mm -hmm. uh, and others?
4: You know, I think on this one you have to say even more. Does it demand a deliberate conscious choice for um, downward mobility, that everything doesn't have to be upped, upped for me to be happy? Mm. Uh, I just see our culture straining for excess, for almost every advertisement. Think of it as people dancing because they're tied box. <laughs> <laughs> cleans their clothes. And it's just always. Isn't this wonderful? It's also stupid. Uh, and no one believes it. Mm-hmm. No one believes it, but it's elegant people, beautiful people.
1: Mm. <sighs> You're not enough unless you yeah, consume this. Or-
4: it's not a real world, and yet we allowed ourselves that world to be normalized and each uh, set of commercials has to be more clever than the last Mm. ones what is going to be the end point Mm. they tell me the end point is violence or porn Mm. wow you know that that when the the nerve ends need more stimulation more stimulation you move toward Uh, the violent or the pornographic. Wow.
2: Wow,
1: that's profound. The
4: the ordinary, just the gentle touch on the hand or whatever, isn't stimulating anymore. Mm. Isn't that sad? Yeah. So, um, and I think we've all faced it. I certainly have. I mean, I have been taken all over the world to four-star restaurants and four-star hotels, and I'm not saying they're wrong. But, um, You just better watch it. So after a while, you feel, well, I'm not showing him proper respect if I don't take him to a four star restaurant. Uh, He has to get that practical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I tell friends, it doesn't have to be fancy, you know. Um, we, We will all go in that direction. And I'm not saying there isn't a place for vacation, for excess, for the wedding anniversary. But when every weekend is the wedding anniversary, Mm. as it were, it doesn't mean anything anymore, you know? Um, So the more we can be home-based, close to uh, our own little world, our own little plot of earth, uh, our own little lower middle class world. I I know these are Franciscan values and I'm not saying I've lived them. I've tried to live them but I also got pulled into the world of nice things just because of this. Everybody felt, well, he's the speaker. He's got to be taken Mm -hmm. (laughs) to. And I end up, you know, staying in places that I say Francis would turn over in his grave but I don't want to hurt my hosts.
2: um,
4: How do we get the courage that Mother Teresa had Mm -hmm. to just tell people, no, I won't stay there. Now, she'd tell them before she went. Yeah. I Mm -hmm. want to stay in a Motel 6 or something like that. Wow.
1: So I have a question Um, then, you know, as we look at radical simplicity and you just mentioned Franciscanism, what would you say is the right relationship to beauty then in simplicity. And here's what I mean. I think I think our culture has taken beauty and, and made it and commodified it into consumption, right? Yeah. So that we think well put. we have to serve the slave of moreness. Yes. But also, I mean to play into the absolute stereotype of being a four. <laughs> my own deep appreciation of beauty and you know, just I just was in um, Spain for the first time in ten years. And they don't, it's like even just the way they set a humble table is beautiful. Mm. The orientation toward a rhythm of life that's slow is beautiful. And to me, there's a certain simplicity in that that's not about moreness. It's just about yes. beauty. Yes. So can you help me um, just navigate that in a way that doesn't, how do we not turn um, the desire to uh, orient toward and cultivate beauty in this, in this life? How do we not become idolatrous in yeah. that desire, to where we lose simplicity,
4: or associate beauty with expensive? Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, that feels. <laughs> That's yeah. what you meant by consumerism. I know. Right. I got to get her a beautiful gift. Really means an expensive gift, mm-hmm. where the first observation is how much did it cost. Uh, we've got some transference, some conversion, if uh, to do in that direction. Because we keep upping the ante. And after a while, it isn't beautiful. It's garish. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's really overdone. Oh, you see this in... At least I see this in some necklaces, people. How much more can you dangle around your (laughs) neck? (laughs) It's just... Stop it. Now, forgive me. I'm being a one, but... uh, do you really think that makes you more beautiful or that makes you more valued? We, we always... Uh, don't to consider beauty the harmony of uh, the, the true and the good. Mm. Mm-hmm. And when it isn't true anymore, like 15 circles of jewelry around your neck, there's something untrue about that. Mm-hmm. Do you understand? It's like mm-hmm. this is not the way the world can live. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we all had to have gold and silver, well, 15 that. rings around our neck, the world can't live right. that way. Right. It's unsustainable. That's untrue. Or that you're worth that much, you'd be worth so much more uh, if you didn't need that. Mm. Uh, and we could just look at the beauty of your own form mm-hmm. um, okay. and see the inherent goodness I hate to be picking. I don't want to undo the business of jewelry makers. But (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the the inherent goodness is different than decorative goodness, Mm -hmm. you see. And when you decorate yourself too much, you don't pay attention to the inherent goodness, Mm. nor do you admire it, Mm -hmm. nor do you love it. Yeah, or you can't I'm, even see it you, you can't you see can't it. even see it thats yeah. right yeah I
1: was just I'm, I'm reflecting I mean you're talking you're thinking in jewelry terms but um, as I visited Our, Our Lady of Montserrat uh, the Black Madonna in Montserrat and it took two hours to get to her I mean the whole the place had been turned into a zoo the monastery there's no trace of it It just feels like it's like a Disneyland wow. and then you finally get up to her and this is this is the the Madonna and um Ignatius of Loyola laid down his arms in front of this Madonna Mm. and uh, this little statue of this black Madonna. And then you finally get up to her and you have like one minute there before you're ushered out because the lines are so long. And there was so much gilding everywhere, everywhere, all around that you could hardly pay attention to the profound shape and what she represented as this beautiful black Madonna holding the world in one hand and Christ in the other. Mm. You know, and I kept saying I was like I wish I could just take her out of that and just put her in a white simple, <laughs> you know, so that you could actually see it. But I think what you're saying is profound, Richard, that that the movement towards simplicity doesn't sacrifice beauty. No. But rather it puts beauty no. in service to the the good and the true. Yeah, no. Yeah. Very good.
4: Very good. Zen Buddhism and early Franciscanism have that same instinct mm-hmm. that less is more, mm-hmm. less is beautiful because it doesn't make you emphasize the externals or the decorative.
3: Yeah. yeah, there's there's a true grace and beauty to the simple life where you see someone who is embodying that and that it's almost yeah. that, that, rad, that radical vulnerability fits in with that. Um, and it just sprung to mind uh, a memory, Richard, when I was an intern, you took me out for a meal And then I tried to pay, and you said, no, no, I'll take care of it. Uh, I have a vow of poverty. You have to help me keep it.
4: Mm. Did I? (laughs) I'm glad.
3: Even even that (laughs) relational simplicity, too, where it's uh, trying to expand the limits of your your generosity, too. That it's Mm -hmm. not about – it wasn't – a showy act, I, you know. Mm. I think me, I was trying to take you out. I was trying to be showy in that way. Well, let no, me take you care aren't. of this humble friar. No, you were um, humble friar. <laughs> I, I wish. I think there's something <laughs> to that. That 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 simplicity that does is grounded in in beauty and vice versa. That they play off each other so well when um, when they're truly sit between. uh How'd you say it? The the good it's and right, the right,
4: true. The good and the true. The harmonizing yes. of the good and the true. Yes. Yeah. Is beauty. Yeah. You see a piece of architecture that you know is, is beautiful, mm-hmm. and you see one that is just overstated, mm-hmm. uh, trying too hard, big pillars and mm-hmm. uh, marquees and so forth, statues in front, as are many churches, I must say. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I go to uh, Europe to see magnificent 13th century cathedrals, And then I see garish, ugly, ugly Catholic churches they are just, Mm. you're trying too hard. You're not in love with goodness or truth anymore. Because truth wouldn't allow you to cover statues of the poor St. Francis with gold. (sighs) Don't you see the inconsistency of that? Mm. That they don't. Tells me they don't understand St. Francis mm-hmm. or any other saint for that yeah. matter. Yeah,
3: but they lost that intentional somewhere along the line. Somewhere they made one they concession lost. and it yeah, just kept building.
4: Yeah. I just like to melt down some of those churches, and <laughs> give the money to the poor. Richard's
1: you know? fantasy is just melting the gold <laughs> melting
4: down. <laughs> down churches.
2: <laughs>
1: this this value though of um, radical simplicity, and you talked about downward. You know, just the focus on the less um, poverty. And then also, as we talk about beauty, it's, there's something so important for our time right now with the ecological crisis that yep, we're in yep. to, to center this value of radical simplicity. And it's so difficult to find a way to do that as families out in the world, mm. right? And I, I don't know. I wonder if you have a word of advice for ways where we cannot be dogmatic, but actually have integrity to this value of simplicity,
4: I bet you two could answer this better than I. Because when they see you delighting in sitting on the ground and making daisy chains or something like Mm -hmm. that, instead of needing to go to Disneyland one Mm -hmm. more time or Mm -hmm. what even, um, they're going to learn. I don't know any other way to teach it except to model that you take delight in simple things. Mm-hmm. You take delight in ordinary things. How you started today, you went into nature. You know, behind my little hermitage over here, there's a rather big backyard that most people don't even know is there. And so it's normally quiet. Now since I have Opie, uh, I take her him for a you know, walk four or five times a day. And uh, I've just discovered the magnificence of those trees, yeah. there's four huge yeah. cottonwoods. And uh, I admire them every day. And I experience just what you said, uh, a kind of spiritual frequency. Mm. I just, I walked back to my house slower than I came out just because of gazing at those trees. I don't know how long they've been there. Um, I've always loved trees. But um, it, is, it you said it well. It is a different frequency. Now, when they see you as their parents admiring a tree, getting gaga over the beauty of a tree, and not needing, you know, an America's Got Talent stage with shooting fireworks, mm. how are we going to turn this around? How how do you make content, contemplatives? Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, the stage sets are just getting more elaborate. And I'm in awe of them, too. How'd they do that? Mm -hmm. And how'd they change it in 10 minutes? So I'm not saying I don't admire it. Mm -hmm. But it's not true. Mm. This is not true reality. It sometimes outdoes the singer. (laughs) It sometimes outdoes the dancer. Yeah. And this is not true anymore. I thought it was about your talent. I'm being, I don't want to be harsh, but pare it down, pare it down. Mm -hmm. A really good singer can stand alone on a stage with a microphone and a voice and enchant you.
3: Another name for everything will continue in a moment.
0: Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage.
3: Wow, I feel yeah. like you've been reading my journal, Richard. Uh, really? Brie and I were just talking about this not long ago about, yeah. I think I said, like I want my spirituality to be like folk singer spirituality, where mm. things are just cut so. back to the true essence where mm. it's vulnerability, but it's it's the beauty of the poetics of the words that, should, that are the natural outflow from very a place of integrity. So you don't need any... Like I love hip hop as well, but you don't need the layers of of all those beats and and hooks. You just have that that voice speaking truth, and that's where I hope to go in my own sense of mm-hmm. uh, a journey of downward mobility. But it's also there's the you have to be intentional because there's like oh it would be nice to add that background vocalist or whatever yeah, it may be because sure. it's going to add a little pizzazz to yes. your uh,
1: well your yeah song and dance.
3: it does
1: it does. But Paul and I were also talking about how. A commitment to simplicity, to this kind of living from that frequency, also requires us to make hard choices about what demands our time. Mm, mm -hmm. And there is something about this culture, again, having just experienced the contrast, I'm so present to it. There's something about our American culture that thrives on stress, and work yeah. is stressful and it invades the thought and it's almost like we're addicted to stress and addicted yeah. to being at this level of intensity mm. that I do think keeps us from that frequency as well so we ha- I, I, that's something i'm working on is like what is the what is the right relationship to creative projects mm. so that i remain in that place of stillness and don't fall out of myself mm. when i take on you know more work or consider, you know, what's the right rhythm of my life. It's like we're absent of that core cultural rhythm of life that is value slowness and meals at the table and Mm -hmm. the kind of presence that could allow for walks to admire trees, you know. so Mm -hmm.
4: If if contemplation isn't leading us to some form of under-stimulation and a sense of enoughness, Mm -hmm. And I just, just this weekend, I went to the backyard with Opie mm. ten times, probably. I just I said, What more do I need than this backyard? Mm. It's just so beautiful. Uh, it's a kind of contentment with less and less. Yeah. Mm. And um, there's no show I could go to. There's no rock concert I could go to. Yeah. Well, that would be miserable for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bono, don't listen to this. Yeah, so I, yeah. Bono. <laughs> so I,
3: I have a friend in town uh, who lives a very radically simple life. You know, He's in his 60s. He dumpster dies for food. His house is always open in case someone needs a place to stay. And I asked him one time, I said, Chuck, how... How did you become this way? And he said that he read uh, an, artic- an interview with Dorothy Day where oh, that wow. same question was asked of her. Really? And she said, one day at a time. Mm. And, oh.
2: and
4: he,
3: so he said every, he's like, I try to make these 1% changes in my life, mm. in the right direction. 1%? Right- changes in my life. Change. So it's just like altering things, just 1% and so that's been a challenge that my wife Laura and I have taken on where it's like every yeah. month we try to say what's the change we can make what's by 1%? 1% so we're going the right way and yes. we keep course correcting yes. and then hopefully we end up in a place that has yes. that radical simplicity interiorly and exteriorly yes. but I have found that it is so hard to to, to not when culture is so, inundated, loud. so yeah. loud keep yourself busy be stressed these are actually signs of success. what we think of achievement or success yeah. and We have to be counterculture on this. Do you
4: limit the amount of stimulation TV your kids can watch? Yes. Good.
3: Yeah. And that's been a part of it, even for ourselves. You know, Uh how can we lessen that as well so that we don't get caught up in that same messaging?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's Uh actually, that's really, that's a practical, helpful way, I feel like, for families to engage with these values, is what you just said. Like, all right, how do we take monthly stock of where we are? And try to make these little incremental changes that can allow us to practice it. It's so helpful.
4: And notice that we're saying limit, less. We're not dualistically saying throw out the TV. Right. Or the TV is evil. No. It's okay. There's a place for it.
2: Mm.
1: But
4: let's put... That's much harder virtue to put limits or boundaries to things. Mm. Yeah.
1: Well, speaking of virtue, Richard, shall we transition to... The, this idea of this value that you were describing as public virtue or um, this commitment to, or, to orienting ourselves in kind of a radical generosity of giftedness to the all?
4: You know, a few months ago, in fact, I think I sent it to you, Paul, uh, representing the Living School. I said, we've tried in the first five years of the Living School to teach our students service. And many of them are doing amazing service. So, but and there was a way in which it didn't land true. It felt like uh, something you have to do or must do to show that you're a living school student. Um, and frankly, there were a good number who didn't seem to rise to the occasion. <laughs> didn't seem to. Who knows? Who knows? But I suggested to you, if you remember, Mm -hmm. that we change the word from service to solidarity with. And I was so happy when, without exception, every one of you in the school and out that I shared it with came back with a strong yes for that. Um, Solidarity with is what I mean by public virtue, that... Your eyes are turned outward toward the world, toward reality. Obedience to reality and to standing in union with it instead of just um, serving it. where The subject-object split is preserved. I enter into their subjectivity Mm. and share their subjectivity. Then, if an act of service emerges... Hallelujah, because it now comes out of compassion and love for my friends and not just me heroically serving someone else. So when I talk about public virtue, I mean, that needs to be our bias, I think, always. How can I be in solidarity? And that's going to be different for everybody. What group? Is it the immigrants? Is it the battered women? Is it those imprisoned? Is it the homeless? uh but somewhere you've got to make a move to know at least one of s- such people by name, by face, by experience and doing that little bit of a walk with them leads you to make some changes in your life. Mm-hmm. It's actually much harder than acts of service. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to do it much more regularly when I was a jail chaplain. Now, Elias helps me because he's working with the homeless and the immigrants. Keeps me in touch with both of those groups. But uh, I have to say, in these years of writing books, uh, I don't think I did that enough. There was always uh, ways, well, you're serving by writing, and maybe I was i hope i was but it it becomes clinical Mm. your writing does Mm. uh unless you have solidarity with some concrete homeless people some concrete immigrants uh it's so wonderful because of my public role even though i live in this little hermitage behind the parish I don't know how many people came to my door this weekend, and on the grounds there was a little fundraiser uh, to pay for the bonds for immigrants who are in prison, you know, or in jail. So it comes to me uh, and says, "Be in solidarity with me." So I have to take advantage of those opportunities.
1: Mm. This feels like it ties in so well with how you started the. The value of devotion of a heart, the Mm -hmm. imagery of a heart-centered approach to life that is wounded, and again, to bring the image of the sacred heart, that is wounded by, and okay being wounded by, Mm -hmm. the suffering in our midst and the suffering of the body of Christ in the world, which is a a totally different way Mm -hmm. of living. We typically like to be protected from that, or move away, or look away, not openly, soft Mm -hmm. to, hurting with.
4: And that you really need to assess. I mean, i got to be honest. I've met some very smelly, homeless people Mm -hmm. (laughs) and some very disagreeable people on the streets that everything in me wants to turn away Mm -hmm. or to Mm -hmm. get away. It's just so unpleasant. Mm -hmm. And God must understand that. But then I at least have to have the honesty to admit, uh, like little Therese of Lisieux did, I don't know how to love at this moment. Mm. Uh, and, and that's my inability to be Christ or t- t- to look out with the eyes of Christ. I don't need to hate myself for it, but I do need to recognize I'm not there yet. Okay, I'm not there yet. Mm uh Lord, lead me, teach me, mm. soften me, mm. yeah. it leads you to prayer,
2: mm.
4: really yeah.
1: It's so interesting too. I'm just realizing it's almost like you're good at this, Richard, that you like have experience weaving profound insights into actionable ways of practicing them because <laughs> this second point of radical simplicity, if that wasn't there, you know like there's something about our consumeristic culture that keeps us distracted yeah. Mm. And keeps us busy and keeps us obsessed with Mm -hmm. accumulating that we can't, it's like there's in that, in that approach to life, there's no room to look outward, to be wounded, to listen to the cries of Mm -hmm. the earth or the cries of our neighbors. There's no orientation toward the spaciousness of encounter. So I really appreciate the way that these weave together Mm -hmm. without radical simplicity. Can we even expect to have the encounters that can wound our heart? Mm.
4: Right on. You said it well. You know, when I presented these to the faculty just at a call last week, I said, you know, it's just striking me right now, and I'm being honest in saying this, these are the same as the three vows of religious life. Yeah. And Cynthia just shouted. She says, you got it. it." (laughs) Devotion would be chastity. Mm Uh uh, what of the other...
1: Simplicity.
4: <laughs> Simplicity would be poverty. Huh? Yeah. And obedience to reality would be public virtue. Oh,
1: it's see? so good.
4: It really works. Yeah. <laughs> and so she wants, uh, in, in fact, it Conspire next year, she wants us to really develop, and the whole team did so wow. we've got to develop these three virtues and recognize these aren't new. Why did every religious order it's come passed. back to poverty, right. chastity, and obedience? Mm-hmm. They were probably poorly named. our obedience was to our superior. you know our poverty was for the sake of our private virtue, mm-hmm. you know, and our chastity meant uh celibacy. Yeah. now, all three of those would be. Significantly different. I mean, a, a lay person has a virtue of chastity. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Now you don't look at every beautiful woman that walks by, you know, because you, you're committed to one, right? And you've mm-hmm. given your that's just as much chastity, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it flings open the doors for the yeah.
3: laity to be in communion, in solidarity with those in religious life, and it. Mm. I mean, I just I can just feel the way the way you were translating them to the parlance of today. How it feels like we can all hold hands in these kind of communities. versus yeah, yeah, like yeah. secluded behind a wall or you know behind a, a yeah. closed community door. There's a oneness to it yeah. that I don't think I'd, I had connected to before. Well, and
1: it reminds me of a conversation you and I just had, Paul, about desiring to – it's like looking for an, like um, an orientation of commitment. Like mm. we want to live these values. Yeah. I like that you're calling them they're also vows because in a way yeah, it, it really creates – that's what creates a container mm. within which we can focus the energy of our lives and our love and put it in the use and in service of this this vision of the universal Christ and animating that that reality into our world. But it's like we need that almost like that guide of what are the yeah. things I live by. Mm-hmm. So I love the idea of them as vows. Like It's like oh, a new, yeah. it's, it's like a new order. It's a new universal of Christ. The point whole
4: session. Yeah. Yeah. The vowed life was a focused life. Mm-hmm. It, it didn't matter that you didn't always live them perfectly, but they became the North Star that said, this is the container yeah. that's going to hold my life together. Yeah. yeah. Good. If we can do nothing more than transfer that, Mm. At the CAC, we've created a, a lay form of spirituality that's believable.
1: Mm. It's like the the rule of life of the Universal Christ. Yeah, yeah. very
4: good,
2: very good. So good.
3: Yeah. I love that phrase you just said too. Believable, like Belie- we all want to le- live a believable life, uh-huh. not you know something that's in deep relationship to reality, not something that's so idealistic or. S- bypassing the spiritual bypass, but really believable and grounded in not only ourselves, but also in relationship to others and God.
2: Oof, mm-hmm.
1: Good stuff. So in closing, Richard, I wonder if we can ask you, where have you experienced one of these values in, in your week this past week,
4: this past, week, where
1: has your heart sparked with devotion or you felt a turn, a desire to move into even greater simplicity or, felt that animated desire for solidarity and public virtue?
4: Well, you know, um, I keep coming back to those three trees in my backyard that I've spent so much time with by taking Opie out to poop and to pee. (laughs) It's so mundane. But um, I've named one the elegant tree, one the mysterious tree, And the other, the uh, stately tree. Um, And they all have spoken of this beauty to me, but three different kinds of beauty. The one is a little farther over uh, behind a fence. I don't know what it means beyond that, but it was, uh, you know, minutes of observation just standing there and realizing these are hidden. In the back of the parish lot, most people at Holy Family Parish have probably never seen these trees, you know. Mm. And they're just works of art, even filled with a lot of dead limbs. Uh, but uh, yeah, beauty, beauty. And I've said that here you've been standing here. I've lived in this little house now 20 years, mm. they've been standing there the whole 20 years. And I don't think I ever learned to appreciate them like I did these last couple weeks. Mm-hmm. And it was because I had to take Opie out to poop. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and she sometimes he sometimes takes a while. I still say she because I think of Venus. Right. right. Uh, it takes him a while to decide to do it. I don't know. Do you? Parents go through this. Oh,
1: oh, yeah. <laughs> oh <yes. laughs> yeah, yeah. It's got to be
3: in the right place, the right, right time. time. <laughs> Sometimes
1: the right place and time don't show up, so it's That's just right. a, the wrong place <laughs> in the wrong, wrong. time. Right. <laughs> right. Well, thank you, Richard. I oh, can feel how these values are going to be such a helpful frame for us uh, to begin living into these teachings. Yeah. I
4: didn't expect it to go this direction, but I'm glad it did. Mm if we can somehow renew the historic three vows, mm-hmm. we're going to give a gift to the world. Yeah. You know? And dissociate it from habits and cloisters. Did you ever go to a monastery in Spain? where oh, yeah. The grill, oh, yeah. where you don't even see the Carmelite sister? Oh, yeah. yeah. <sighs> it's like, what does this have to do with following of Jesus? I know they did it for the highest of motives. Mm-hmm. So not putting them down. But I don't think it made them holier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, our old idea of cloister, that this kept the heart pure, that I'll never see a man. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe it'd be better if you'd see a man <laughs> and say, I don't desire him more than God, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, now I'm Thank preaching. You.
3: Thank you, Richard.
4: Thank you.
1: Well, should we look at some listener questions?
3: Let's do it.
5: Hello, I am Ada Marcorain from Dublin in Ireland. Um, Father Richard equates the Logos with Christ, and this is a beautiful idea. And it means that um, if we are all created or given that we are all created in accordance with the primordial pattern of the Logos, then we are all necessarily Christian, simply by virtue of our existence. So it seems to me that that means that uh, Christianity becomes another word for humanity. Uh, And I have two questions. Um, If we are all already Christian before we belong to any other religion, then what need is there for a specifically Christian religion? And what purpose does Christianity serve in these circumstances? And if it is the case that we are all already Christian, uh, what church did Jesus found when he said to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church? Was Jesus creating a natural religion to which all automatically belong? And if so, where does that leave Christians and Christianity as we currently know it? And secondly, if we are all already Christian, then do we find ourselves saying to our Jewish and our Muslim and our Hindu sisters and brothers and people of all other faiths that we think that they are, in fact, Christian before they are Jewish or Muslim, etc. And then we would be calling them uh, Christian Jews and Christian Muslims, and I'm not so sure that they would like that, so we very interested in Father Richard's uh, thoughts on this. Thank you very much. Good luck. Wow.
4: <laughs> There's about five questions in there. <laughs> <laughs> but let me at least uh, take a poke at it. Yeah, you're, you ended with a very uh, important point that who are we to impose the word Christian on people who don't identify as such? Carl Rahner uh used the term anonymous Christian, but then he later recognized the same problem. Why do we have to pull them into our camp? As to why do we need Christianity? Because nothing uh, emerges or continues if it doesn't have a leavening agent. You have to have some place where it's spoken, it's celebrated, it's studied, it's... uh, uh, accept, accepted at an in-depth level. Now, I know you can make your arguments and so we haven't done that very well, but to imagine that the message of incarnation would uh, disseminate in the world unless there was a propagating force, I don't think it would. Uh, be, frankly, because I think it would be too much to imagine that this could be true. So Someone has to dare to believe it could be true and say it, even though, and I admit, we ourselves only half believe it. But God works with half-believers, too, so it's okay. Was there another one in there that I should be sure to address? Uh.
3: Well, I think there's one, too, about, um, about what? church. Like, what, what was Jesus trying to
4: start?
2: Oh, when yeah. he said, on
4: this rock, we will
2: build oh, my yeah, church. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: Well, first of all, Forgive my disrespect, but you know I'm still a Roman Catholic. I guess I am. I'm roar. still in kids- you're, you're a roar Catholic. <laughs> that's that's what you are. Uh, I don't believe Jesus was talking about the Roman Catholic Church. Mm. That's the mythology we created from that one quote, which is an awful lot of weight for one quote to carry. It was probably inevitable, given. How civilizations formed themselves in that first thousand-year period. You had to have a a leader, you know, a, a namesake at the top. So we made him into the Bishop of Rome, the the Saint Peter. Um, but I think he was affirming the faith of Peter, not the office of Peter. The idea of an office would have been unthinkable or unknown. Mm. But that doesn't mean we have to overreact and say, okay, that means it's 100% wrong. Uh, it's produced too many good fruits along with plenty of bad fruits. Uh, and this is uh, such a good argument, how God works with imperfect, even broken instruments, as, as God does in every single denomination. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you need a leavening agent for any movement, to continue and to continue to critique itself. Again, I admit, we didn't do so well in the critiquing till really the Second Vatican Council and popes like Francis. So that shows how slowly we're emerging.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And doesn't this bring to bear also what you've said about the difference between um, the, the living tradition and the institution? Mm-hmm. which is, in other words, what Jesus was after was yeah. cr- was to christen, yeah. to to birth a living tradition of human beings seeing the world from that oneness. And we assume he was talking about a yes. system of power and institution yes. because that's what it became.
4: That's what it, that was all we could imagine. Right. But it, at
1: that depth level, the, at that mystical level, it's the experience. Yes. You know, and there's a... Is it Raymond Panikkar who says Christ is the icon of all reality? Yes, yes. And an icon as a symbol, a symbol of all reality. That doesn't mean that we have to go around sticking the Christ label on mm. people who are Jewish or Hindu or, you know. Or but the
4: it, Catholic label or right, any label, label or any other. But it's no. to
1: say at the depths... All of these traditions take us like a forest of trees. Take us all the way down.
4: There you go to yeah. a
1: depth of oneness yeah. where we see oneness and we can name oneness.
4: Perfect, lovely, lovely. But um,
1: it's the getting down to that that and, is and important. And we just
4: couldn't think that way, right? Uh, that's why you you know I keep referring back to uh, systems like spiral dynamics and integral theory. Once you, it becomes clear that there has been an evolution of consciousness, how the mind was capable of operating and until very recently uh, we couldn't operate at the egalitarian uh, invisible level of energy and love and force and healing. It had to be it had to have a name, it had to have an office, mm. uh, it had to have high visibility so we could grab onto it and join it and decide who the members are and who the members are not. And uh, even though the Protestant Reformation brought uh, critical thinking to the Catholic experience, it still repeated the institutionalization. Mm
6: -hmm.
4: Because even in the 16th century, we weren't ready for it. Yeah. Mm
6: -hmm. All right. This is Lillian in Macedonia, Ohio. There has been a recent survey conducted asking Catholics about their belief in the real presence in the Eucharist. Results show that much catechesis is needed, as well as a further evolution of consciousness regarding the true meaning of the real presence in the Eucharist. I personally believe that we have not scratched the surface of the depth of the meaning. To me, Eucharist is more of an action— along with the community and the celebrant. In your book, Universal Christ, you write, quote, I must hold to the orthodox belief that there is real presence in the bread and wine. For me, if we sacrifice reality in the elements, we end up sacrificing the same reality in ourselves, unquote. Would you expand on how you see these realities in both the elements, in ourselves, and the world around us? Do they differ? And if they do differ, please let us explain.
4: Okay, I'll try as best I can. Presence is a relational concept. So in all cases, from Jesus himself to the universe uh, to the bread and the wine to anything in between, uh, your capacity for I-thou, mutuality, giving and receiving, stillness and vulnerability, that determines how much real presence you can handle. So that really pulls us into the equation in a rather significant and serious way and keeps us from arguing about the how, the if, the what. It invites us to... uh, get out of our heads, get into our bodies. The very thing that Jesus said is eat this, drink this. Mm-hmm. That's body language. So I admit that it's different ways to experience presence, but I'm glad you focused in on the, the underlying word of presence. That's what we're talking about. We Catholics overemphasize the physicality and uh, maybe some other denominations overemphasize the mere symbolism. Right. Yeah. Uh, let's let's stop that dualistic food fight. Mm. It's it's <laughs> to no profit. Yeah. Uh, if we can if we can try to be present ourselves, whatever that means at your level of maturity you will experience the real presence. Mm-hmm. I, I believe that. I believe that. But you can experience that real presence walking down the street and in the shower. Mm-hmm. Uh, now now you're naturally saying as a thinking person, well then why do we need the Eucharist? Again, I get back to what became the notion of sacrament, what I call leavening agent. You have to get a big truth on a small stage. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said that. Big truths have to be pulled into a smaller setting where I see it, I hear it, I struggle with it, I even fight against it, and then it perhaps, hopefully, becomes real. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I wouldn't throw out the Eucharist, but I think we have to be honest at this point in history that a lot of people, especially through deeper forms of prayer, have become highly capable of presence mm-hmm. without being Eucharistic Christians. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, like my Catholic flock, are Eucharistic Christians and sometimes not very capable of presence. Mm-hmm. They come up the aisle talking and nudging and poking one another. I mean, God understands, I'm sure. But uh, they're somewhere else. Mm. They're not here now.
3: Mm. Yeah. I think, too, there's different ways of trying, the, the, mental, the mental gymnastics of trying to understand what the Eucharist is versus the experience of the presence and how um, that invitation is to not just, I think in my own denomination, evangelical denomination growing up, when we would do as we would call it communion
1: with juice cups, with juice cups
3: and, you know, broken, uh, Crackers. saltines. Um, but there was so much, there was, it was lacking the mystery of what is, what is occurring of like, what is that experience of yes. it? It was just trying to understand the mental models that would help me understand how is this symbolic of my relationship to mm. Jesus and what is the salvation of the cup and what is the breaking of the body, you know? and, so it really wasn't until I got into another space where I was able to enter into uh, a deeper sense of this is a mystery that I'm participating in, not uh, a theological statement that I am just standing on through a, a denominational lens. Does yep.
4: that make
2: sense?
3: Like, it very much
4: full so. body. It's what we're trying to get to, and so often at the center we talk about transactional yeah. instead of transformational. Again, I would say that's where the mind was at. Till the middle of the 20th century. It understood things as transactions Mm -hmm. and do the right transaction. You did it with saltines. We we called that heresy because there was not supposed to be any salt in Jesus. It
1: was heretical for lots of reasons. (laughs)
4: Just sad. Oh, gosh. And we overly... um, You know, I remember when the priest would drop the host, which I did just this Sunday, and the people would (gasps) go, oh! You know, and they'd all fall to their knees and try to find the particles. That was an over physicality. Uh Because uh, the presence is communicated through the bread, in the bread, but it's in the bread, in the eating, in the giving and receiving. Not the, uh, I mean, if we just knew the physics of it, every time you hold that wafer, thousands of particles yeah. are falling to the earth. So mm. that we were overly physical. Mm. Yeah.
1: And how at the end you know, that in our in our tradition, Jesus says, Do this in remembrance of me. Mm. That we are being remembered to that presence.
4: That's lovely. That yeah. that's
1: that's the gift of the Eucharist is the participating and being reconnected mm. mm-hmm. to that reality. I don't know. Yeah.
4: You're building on the Word in a very solid way. Mm -hmm. And that's the breaking of the big piece of bread into many pieces, symbolizing that. Mm -hmm. But how many people get it, I don't know. I I try to explain it right while I'm doing it. And the good people listen, and I don't know how many of them think of remembering, but you do. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
3: And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation. Thanks to the generosity of our donors.
1: The beautiful music you're listening to was brought to you by Will Reagan. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit CAC.org.
3: To learn more about the themes of the universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good.
0: Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.